0: Breach, your deep dive into authoritarianism and corruption in the era of Trump. If you're enjoying the show, please help new people find out about these important issues by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Consider it an act of resistance. I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. This is the final episode of Season 2 of The Breach. But don't worry, we'll be back with more in-depth interviews on October 10th. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's a great time to do so, to make sure you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Rewire's immigration reporter, Tina Vasquez. Tina is an award-winning journalist with deep expertise on migration, feminism, and racial justice. She's here today to talk to us about President Trump's decision to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals programs, better known as DACA. For 800,000 undocumented youth, DACA has been a lifeline. Now, their ability to work or even remain stateside is imperiled as Trump gives Congress six months to resolve a legislative issue they've been unable to crack for the past 16 years. Tina, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Can you give us an outline of what DACA is?
1: Yes, so uh, DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's a uh, two year program, so young undocumented people have to renew it every two years, and it costs $500 to renew. Um, They can only be in it if they meet very specific requirements. If they've been in the country for a certain amount of years, if they graduated from high school in the United States, if they were brought here before a specific date, um, if they can prove their residency in the United States for all of the years that they were here, and then if they can do all of that, and it's approved. They can get a work permit, a social security number. They can obtain a driver's license, and so that's that's the gist of it. It's not. It's been called amnesty and a pathway to citizenship and things like that, but it, it's not those things.
0: How and why was this program created? Um, so I
1: think the popular narrative is that it's something that President Obama did for Dreamers, um, and that's what they call. Um, these young people who came to the United States when they were very young and have basically only known the United States as their home. But really it happened because Obama failed to move on comprehensive immigration reform, um, the DREAM Act, which the same population of people, it would have allowed them if they graduated from college or served in the military to have a pathway to citizenship. Um, That's been in place since 2001, and it's being discussed again. There's been no movement on that. And so young undocumented people wanted some kind of administrative relief. So they started doing sit-ins and protests and all kinds of acts of civil disobedience all over the country, demanding some sort of, you know, reprieve from deportation, even if it's very limited as it is with DACA. And so so that's how DACA came about. It was it was because of organizing on the behalf of young undocumented people.
0: Now, you said that's been in place since 2001. Is that the DACA framework or something different?
1: Oh, no. So so the DREAM Act was first introduced in 2001, and that would have provided the same population of young people with a pathway to citizenship. The DREAM Act is being discussed again because DACA has been rescinded, but re- DACA
0: has been in place since 2012. So what is DACA, legally speaking?
1: Um, it's It's... It basically means that for two years, you won't be deported. I mean, it can be taken away for any number of reasons, and there's no board of appeals so that if your doc is denied, um, there's really nothing that you can do about it. But, but that's essentially what it allows young people to do. They don't have to fear deportation for two years. For a lot of them, you know, when you're undocumented, it is illegal to work in the United States. So a work permit drastically changes the kind of opportunities that you can access. So a lot of young people report, you know, having benefits for the first time, or being able to make a livable wage for the first time, being able to attend college um, in the state in North Carolina. Even if you're, even if you have DACA, you still have to pay out-of-state tuition, which is three times the cost of in-state tuition, and that's the case in a few other states. But for the first time, because they're able to make more money because they have better jobs, they can actually afford college. So for a lot of young people, it's also enabled them to to go to college for the first time or to pick up where they left off.
0: What's the legal status of the program, though? Is it a law? Is it a policy? Is it an executive order? Like, why can Trump just wave his hands and make it disappear?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's an executive order. And so, you know, there was also something introduced by Obama called DAPA, which would have been deferred action for the parents of American citizens. So, you know, that, that would be millions of people. And That was challenged and nothing came of it. It was challenged by Texas and a few other states. And the argument was that Obama overreached, that he didn't have the power to enact such a a program. And so that's the reasoning now that's being used with DACA. If DAPA couldn't have passed because it was an overreach, then DACA was the same thing. And that's why Trump, I mean, according to Trump, that's, that's why they've decided to do away with the program.
0: Earlier this summer, 10 state attorneys general wrote a letter to Trump saying that if he didn't act by September 5th on DACA, they were going to sue him. Can you elaborate on the legal reasoning? I think you were starting to talk about it in the last question that these state's attorneys generals were using in that ultimatum.
1: So, so, it's their belief that DACA was an overreach of President Obama's executive power and that it should be up to states to decide whether or not they want to grant these kinds of things to undocumented people. The Attorney General from Tennessee ended up pulling out of it right before the September 5th deadline, and I think around the time that they rescinded DACA, um, saying that there has to be a better way. To deal with the problem. So now other states are threatening to sue Trump over rescinding uh, DACA. And I know one organization has already filed a lawsuit and there's going to be a hearing on September 15th. So there's, just, there's going to be a lot of legal battles. And it, it, it's hard to say right now how any of it will shake out.
0: A lot of times we hear in sort of the media narrative that DACA addresses young people who came here through no fault of their own. They were brought here before the age of awareness sometimes, or let alone consent. What's problematic about that narrative?
1: Um, I mean, that's hard because sometimes I interview young people with DACA and that's their narrative. And so if that's something that a young person with DACA is saying to me, then, you know, that is a totally valid framework for them. And and I will report that. But in terms of my own reporting and framing about DACA, I avoid the use of the word dreamers. And I avoid using that rationale, you know, that why should they pay for the mistakes of their parents? Because, you know, a lot of these young people are in mixed status families. In my reporting, I primarily focus on undocumented immigrants. So that would be the parents of these young people. And so when I if I were to push a narrative like that, it would basically be saying these young people who have DACA are deserving of living in safety of being able to work and make a livable wage. And these other immigrants that they're not supposed to have that, you know, that that's not Mm -hmm. allowed for them. They're not deserving of that. And that framework makes me very uncomfortable. And it sort of rationalizes when Trump seeks to deport those people in mass numbers. Like we just learned, that there was it was called there was supposed to be an operation launching in the middle of the month that would have targeted those people. It was supposed to be the historic number of um, apprehensions on the part of immigration and customs enforcement. And so if I worked within that framework, I would have to be okay with that happening. And I don't think it's okay that that would be happening.
0: So if you call it the mistakes of their parents, it implies that their parents made a mistake when maybe the mistake was ours for putting the border where it was put or enforcing (laughs) the laws that we enforced around that border.
1: Yes. I mean, there's just... I, and I get that people are on deadlines, and it's hard to provide context for everything. But, but there are reasons why we see mass migration from specific countries, and they often have to do with policies enacted by the United States. I mean, the reason why Mexicans began migrating to the United States was because of things like NAFTA. So without that sort of context,
0: you are know... All the regimes that the US government destabilized in Latin America. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. So without... You know, people just don't leave their homes because they want to and that's easy, you know, and I just think that narrative is way too simplistic.
0: What's a better way? Because it seems like there's a lot of political and moral traction across the political spectrum to say, we want to help these kids, we want to help these young people without necessarily getting into any kind of blame and punishment talk around their parents.
1: I always defer to the people I'm interviewing to sort of lead the way and... What I hear from a lot of young people is that, you know, that narrative just isn't necessary to illustrate what a bad, horrible, uh, almost immoral decision it is to do away with DACA. You, You don't need to use that narrative. And a lot of these young people also are now protesting and organizing after DACA has been rescinded. But what they will say to me is that they're not just doing this for DACA. They're not doing it to get DACA back. They're not doing it just for other young people—they're doing it for their parents and their families—and the other 11 million undocumented people in the United States who who have no recourse, you know, who have no pathway for citizenship, or you know, th- there's no relief for them.
0: Now, Trump has said that there, there's a six-month window after which DACA is going to go away if Congress doesn't do something. Is that setting the stage for mass deportations of 800,000 people?
1: I mean, I think so. Um, as we were just talking about, you know, the DREAM Act has been reintroduced several times. It's always failed. And so the idea, and that's been since 2001. So the idea that in six months, Congress can just pass something is really unreasonable. And I feel like it's just kind of giving the problem to someone else to deal with. And I, and I think I think we will see mass deportations, I mean, earlier this week, there's been a lot of conflicting reports as to whether or not Trump is actually planning to do away with DACA, but some sort of talking points that the administration was using was that these 800,000 young people should begin making the arrangements and preparing to leave the country, so basically telling them to self-deport, and I think any reasonable person uh, would come to the understanding that if they don't self-deport, then there will be mass deportations of DACA recipients.
0: What incentive would anybody have to self-deport before they have to? I mean, I've
1: encountered very few instances
0: of I mean, other than just wanting to go home, but suppose somebody wants to stay here. Why would they leave before the Trump administration says they have to go?
1: I mean, I would have to assume that the Trump administration... And I think Romney said something about this too a long time ago, but basically to make conditions... So inhospitable for undocumented people that they choose to go back. And and I have to think that that's sort of the reasoning. So it wouldn't be a matter necessarily of of wanting to go back or even having anything to go back to. But if your family and your community is being hunted and targeted by this administration in really, really horrible ways, I can see why you would feel like it might just be easier to go back to a country that you don't have a whole lot of familiarity with.
0: Now. Legally, is this a done deal? I mean, we had that announcement by Jeff Sessions saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. But has Trump actually signed the paperwork or is this just a rhetorical gesture saying, hey, in six months, we're going to have to revisit this issue?
1: I mean, I think it's it's just a gesture right now. I mean, that could change at any moment as things often do with this administration. But if, yeah. if nothing, I, I just feel like it's a really disgusting, disrespectful way to be treating these young people. I mean... You know, uh, for a lot of them, DACA has changed their lives in in very tangible ways, and not just their lives, but the lives of their mixed status families. You know, um, a lot of young people have told me that they help their parents buy their undocumented parents buy their first home, or that they help with the bills, or that they can safely drive their siblings to school. And so, to have this all up in the air and not to be providing any sort of direction or input as to what will actually happen is just like a really. Casual way to deal with eight hundred thousand young people who are sort of hanging on your every word about this.
0: It's cruel. It is cruel. Can you introduce us to some of the some of the young people that you've met over the course of of reporting whose stories have particularly touched you?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so we launched a DACA project at Rewire where we were. I mean, we, we started sort of in January when Trump became president because the assumption was that he would do away with DACA and then nothing happened, really. There was talk here and there and it got very quiet and then very loud and then DACA was rescinded pretty quickly. So we've been gathering profiles from young people um, across the country and are still hoping to gather more. But I think the, the most powerful ones for me are that there are very obvious ways that DACA has changed. People's lives, because we know that having a salary and benefits and being able to obtain higher education, those things are all really powerful. But a young man named Nestor from North Carolina uh, talked to me extensively about how DACA has changed his life, maybe in ways that like American citizens take for granted, because he was able to get a driver's license. Um, you know, his parents are undocumented, and there are lots of reasons why undocumented people are afraid of driving he lives in North Carolina where there are, I think, five jurisdictions that participate in a program called uh, the 287G program, which basically deputizes uh, local law enforcement officers to act as immigration officials. And so if you're undocumented and driving in a county that participates in this program and you get pulled over for whatever reason, um, it can lead to your detention and deportation. And so he was able to get a driver's license and he could take his siblings to school. And when his parents wanted to visit family that's out of state, um, he could drive them safely and they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Or if he wanted to travel within the United States He didn't get hassled by TSA because now he had the appropriate paperwork to travel instead of using a Mexican passport while being based in the United States. Um, So just, you know, things like that that we don't think about, you know, just like being able to show ID, being able to drive safely without worrying about those things. And to me, that was really powerful because I'm an American citizen. And honestly, those are things that I didn't think about in the context of DACA and how much relief that would give not just a person, but their whole family.
0: So now that Trump's made this announcement, it seems like the clock is ticking for immigration advocacy and legal organizations to try and form some kind of plan and response. Can you give us an overview of who the major players are and what kind of game plan they seem to be pursuing to look out for the interests of the DACA kids? Yes.
1: So there's an immigration organization that has already sued the Trump administration. And I talked to Jess at our website, who's on Team Legal, and she told me that it's a good sign that the case is moving forward so quickly with the hearing set for September 15th. But in terms of like on the ground things, if the Trump administration chooses to go forward with rescinding DACA and there's no action on the part of Congress. And so now you have these 800,000 young people who, I mean, technically we're already deportable under the Trump administration, even with DACA, because we've seen DACA recipients detained under the Trump administration, but um, to remove all status from them uh, makes them immediately unsafe. And so we're already seeing a lot of workshops pop up. They're called Know Your Rights Workshops, where they sort of let people know what their rights are. I guess a lot of folks are unaware, you know, that when ICE comes to your door, if they don't have a signed warrant, you don't have to open the door. Um, There are toolkits online that I'm seeing circulating um, that inform people of their rights in different languages. I'm seeing a lot of things pop up for uh, like raising money for court cases that may emerge or if you're in detention or deportation proceedings to highlight your case because the more eyes and publicity around your case, the better chance that you have of getting out of detention. Um, So there's a lot of on the ground organizing in terms of like direct action to make the community members more safe. And then there are, you know, larger moves by Uh, attorney generals and state and larger national organizations to sue the Trump administration so they move forward with rescinding DACA.
0: If someone's listening right now and they're moved by the plight of these young people, what can they do in their own community to get involved?
1: Well, you can bring Know Your Rights workshops to your community. I think there are people um, who can come and, and give those workshops and let people know how they can maneuver the system and and what they do and don't have to do if I should come to their door. Um, And just, you know, now is a time where it's a lot of people need a lot of different things. And so maybe it would even be most useful to approach organizations um, or even DACA recipients that you know of and ask them what they need, you know, however shape that takes.
0: One thing I've been hearing a lot from amongst sort of people with immigration status who are saying, you know, I'm here, I'm set, what can I do that maybe other people couldn't do who are in a less secure position? And I think the question is about sort of direct action, civil disobedience, that kind of stuff. What kind of horizons are there for that kind of resistance?
1: I mean, if you're a person uh, with more privilege in that way and you want to participate in direct action, I think... Um, should there be an action where someone is going to be arrested or is likely to be arrested, that person could be you if you chose to go that route because it's, uh, you would have more of a chance of getting out of that situation than a person with no status at all. Um, so, you know, if you are open to that, putting your body on the line in, in very real ways so that uh, people with no status don't have to take that risk.
0: And what is the mainstream kind of resistance, you know, sort of women's march type resistance doing for DACA? I know there was a lot of talk back at the time of the, of the big women's march about standing up for DACA. Are you seeing concrete steps towards actually making good on that, on that rhetoric?
1: Honestly, I mean, maybe it's that I've missed it, but I, I've honestly not seen a lot of that. I, I think. There isn't a lot. I mean, immigration seems like not a feminist issue, not a reproductive justice issue to a lot of people. But to me, it clearly is because half the population that is here and undocumented is women. And we know that a lot of policies, a lot of immigration policies primarily impact women and children. And so I wish that there was a lot of movement on this because immigration is a women's rights issue. It is a reproductive justice issue. I mean, these are women who don't have the ability to parent their children safely. These are women and children that get funneled into family detention centers, you know, when a person is deported in a family and women are left to uh, deal with the trauma of that for themselves and their children and also become the sole breadwinner. You know, there there are a lot of issues that make this a women's rights issue, and I I wish that those communities would sort of come to the table now because this is, uh, it's crunch time. You know, we're seeing really, really unprecedented attacks on immigrant communities from all sides and affecting all kinds of communities.
0: I'm so glad you stressed that because it is so clearly a reproductive rights issue. I mean, just on so many levels, women who don't have status are not getting reproductive health care that they need. Women are facing deportation to places where they have even fewer reproductive rights than they have here. It's just so obviously to me a feminist and reproductive rights issue in addition to all the other human rights issues that it is.
1: Certainly. And, you know, there's so many, there's so much information that sort of outline sexual assaults that happen in detention centers. And and there's no movement on that and no recourse for those women or the ways in which we can't hold uh, federal immigration agencies like ICE and USC uh, custom and border protection and border patrol, how there's no way to hold them accountable and how we're seeing really horrible abuse from officers in those agencies routinely lobbed at, at women and children. And a lot of people are really quiet around those issues.
0: What sense do you get of the Democratic Party's strategy for dealing with this? <laughs> um,
1: I mean, it, to me, it's clear. I mean, and it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of Republicans now say... How unacceptable it is to rescind DACA, and um, I think it's Republicans also that have come out advocating for the Dream Act. I mean, I, I don't. I I wish that Democrats would have been more forceful on this. I feel like generally. People, uh, I think generally Democrats want to praise President Obama and talk about, you know, DACA is this great thing. But DACA is really just kind of a drop in the bucket. It's a Band-Aid. The immigration system is really, really difficult to navigate. There is no pathway to citizenship for 11 million undocumented people here. DACA, if you think about it, it, doesn't provide these young people with a whole lot, you know, and they have to renew it every two years.
0: At great expense,
1: too. Yes, at great great expense. I mean, we can say that, you know, just focus our energies on saying how bad and horrible Trump is and how egregious these things are, but they were also very quiet under Obama, who deported uh, more people than any president, and how I often say vastly expanded the detention system and the way that President Obama decided to deal with asylum-seeking women and children coming from Central America was to funnel them into prisons, basically, and put them in family detention. So, I mean, Obama wasn't great on immigration either, and, you know, he heavily militarized. And Trump goes on and on about the wall to the point where we all make jokes about it, but Obama really, really militarized the the border and really funneled a lot of money to the border um, with approval from Democrats. I I don't know. I I wish that they they would self-examine because it's easy to say— Trump is really bad on immigration, but those same Democrats weren't saying that under Obama.
0: One public opinion poll that I saw said that something like 15% of the country approves of canceling DACA. Does that give us any room to maneuver in terms of creating some kind of legislation, even a Band-Aid of a Band-Aid? I mean, DACA wasn't that great to begin with, but even a temporary extension of DACA statutorily? I mean, I should
1: hope so. I mean, the the narrative that the media is using a lot. I mean, perhaps they're using it because it's one of the few ways that sort of gets empathy from people is that a lot of DACA recipients were children when they came to the United States and should they be deported, they will be deported to countries that they do not know. I mean, when you're undocumented as they were before receiving DACA, you can't travel across borders or else you can't get back into the United States. and so. You know they're going to be sent back to countries that they don't know and families that they've maybe never met or haven't seen. Um, and so that has made people very empathetic for this particular population of immigrants. And so I, I hope that we will see something like DACA or something like the DREAM Act pass, but then, you know, what happens for everyone else?
0: the Republicans have been using a lot of misinformation to kind of scare people and inflame popular passions against DACA and these kids. What's some of the most egregious misinformation that you would like to correct?
1: (laughs) I mean, Jeff Sessions, his speech was so unbelievable to me. I mean, he talked about how DACA actually makes the country more unsafe and how DACA, you know, puts us at risk of terrorism Um, and said that it was almost like an act of compassion that he was rescinding
0: DACA. Um, It was just so unbelievable. Has there ever been a case of any DACA individual being linked to terror in any way? No. I mean, not that I'm aware of. I've never heard of such a thing. But that's just sort of a
1: very popular narrative from the Trump administration. There is the constant, constant conflating of immigration and terrorism or immigration and the murdering of American citizens. Um, this is just what they do. It's the narrative that they trot out every time they discuss immigration.
0: And it's basically just the narrative of white supremacy. Yeah. Repackaged with an immigration view. they're coming for your women. Right.
1: <laughs> it is the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, which is also why I think Trump um, talks so much about Kate's Law. You know, And he picks these very particular cases um, in which an undocumented immigrant... Um, murdered, in this case, a white woman in particular, and um, sort of plants these seeds that immigrants cannot be trusted and that they are harmful and that they are inherently violent and dangerous. And while Sessions didn't get into the kind of bloody language that Trump often uses or even that Sessions has used in the past, It's clear that that's what it was, just this constant hammering away of the point that any immigrants, no matter who they are or where they're from, are bad for the United States. And they endanger American citizens, whether by, you know, shooting them in the streets or by taking their jobs.
0: What can be done in terms of pushing back against this? I mean... (laughs)
1: There are endless studies now, you know, that that prove that this narrative isn't true, that undocumented immigrants and immigrants in general are uh, fearful of any interactions with law enforcement to the point where when bad things happen to them, you know, which often do, because when you don't have any status in a country, you're consistently exploited and not paid money that you're supposed to or abused at work. They are so fearful of law enforcement and getting on their radar that they don't even report crimes that are being committed against them by American citizens. And so
0: what and I would the crime re- rate amongst immigrants themselves is lower, even conservatives agree, yes. than the population at large.
1: Yes, yes. So, yeah, immigrants commit fewer crimes than American citizens. And um, I know that some people think of that as fake news, but it, it simply just is, you know. And by, by deputizing local law enforcement as they try to do in SB4 to basically act as immigration officials or by sort of creating these very scary environments for undocumented people to live in, where they feel like they're being hunted and targeted, and all of this rhetoric is around, it's, it's not beneficial to anyone to ever, ever push those narratives. And if you have to, if that's what's being discussed, then you can sort of, you know, rely on those studies that show that immigrants aren't committing crimes at the levels that Trump says that, and also that this narrative that these are the populations of people, these criminals that he is targeting in these raids, that they're that they are violent criminals. I mean, if you actually look at the numbers, they're not. They don't have criminal records. And what often happens is ICE will go to a place where there are a lot of undocumented immigrants seeking one person who has a criminal record, and then they will detain everyone in the area who does not have authorization to be in the United States. And then it all gets labeled as, you know, ICE apprehended 100 criminal aliens. And the other thing to point out is that people have felonies. So he refers to them as felons as well. If you lived in the United States and you were deported, you know, you built a life in the United States. Perhaps you have children and family here and you're deported and you come back to the United States to be with your family and reunite with your family. And then you get detained by ICE again. uh, You're a felon. So that's another easy way to call people criminals and felons.
0: It's interesting. There's been a ton of news coverage lately about police brutality as it pertains to the oppression of black people. Do you see a confluence in terms of people's growing awareness about the ways in which ICE and targeting and surveillance against immigrants is being recognized as a problem as well? Is there maybe an opportunity to organize around that? I I certainly think so.
1: Um, That was something that we saw emerge a lot in Texas when SB4 was going to be enacted on September 1st. I mean, what's very clear is if you are passing these anti-immigrant, well, first of all, there are black immigrants, right? So any sort of harmful immigration policies impact black people as well. But when you have a law like SB4, which allows and encourages officers to racially profile people, that's not just going to take shape in seeking out brown people for detention and deportation. That also makes the lives very hard of black people who live in the state, of trans and gender nonconforming people who live in the state, and then people who live at those intersections. You know, there are, there are black immigrants, there are black trans immigrants. And so there is, there is a line, you know, and, and j- much like the criminal justice system, The immigration system sort of benefits off the detainment and deportation of people just as, you know, the prison industrial complex. It's the same system, you know, essentially. It's all become a piece. And because of immigration laws that passed um, in the 90s, there's a system that advocates call crimigation, you know, which is criminalizing immigrants for being in the United States and then sort of funneling them into the system the way that we see all kinds of people funneled into the prison system.
0: Tina, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for Recommended Reading, a hand-picked selection to deepen your understanding, or at least your bemusement, at the current political moment. This week's selection comes from Natasha Bertrand of Business Insider, a reporter whose tough coverage drew the ire of Trump lawyer Ty Cobb, who asked Bertrand in a late-night email if she was on drugs. The title says it all. Trump lawyer Ty Cobb, fooled by email prankster, asks for drone in private emails, slamming reporter. The prankster, using the email address dan.scavinojr at emailprankster.co.uk, emailed Cobb and hilarity ensued. That's it for recommended reading. The Breach will return with more in-depth interviews and cutting-edge commentary on October 10th. Please join us for Season 3. by Nora Hurley for Rewire Radio our executive producer is Mark Falletti. our theme music is Dark Alliance performed by Darcy James argues Secret Society and I'm your host Lindsay Beyerstein tweet your suggestions comments and questions to at B-E-Y-E-R-S-T-E-I-N, B-E-Y-E-R-S-T-E-I-N on Twitter see you next week